and thank you again that you are the source of peace and peace is there and you are providing it if we simply accept it. Bless Lester as he shares what you've laid in his heart this morning, that our hearts can be drawn closer to you and that we can see you through what is spoken here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Greetings to each one of you this morning and welcome. Trust you have come here this morning with a desire to hear God speak. As we, um, in our discipleship class, um, we were talking about the word of God and it just reminded me again of the, the power that, that is in that word. God has chosen to reveal himself to us by a written word, and we are blessed to, to have it available to us, to have the freedom to, to gather like this and, and study it. This morning I'd like to continue my study in the book of Galatians. I have been studying this for a while. Um, I've presented a number of sermons out of this book. Today I'm looking at chapters four and five. Just for a little bit of review at what we have previously talked about, we have looked at, well, the, the main theme I'm seeing here in here is the gospel, the pure gospel, and, and Paul's desire, his passion here that the Galatians would remain um, in that pure gospel and not, not go after uh, what he says in chapter 1 is an other gospel, but it's not really the gospel at all. It's a perverted gospel, he says. He's seeing them drift away from the pure gospel. So he's revealing, he's telling us in here what the pure gospel is. That's primarily what we've been looking at. We've looked at how the gospel must be preached. That's by God's design that must be preached and taught, and um, it must be kept pure. We have to know what the pure gospel is if we're going to be able to distinguish it from the perverted gospel. As it says in um, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he says, I marvel you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the, in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. We looked at how the gospel is about pleasing God and not man and is revealed to those who, who come to Christ as his slaves, as willing to serve him. Uh, verse 10 of chapter one. I do not, for do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. We looked at uh, justification by faith. The gospel message is that we are justified not by works, but by faith in Christ. Chapter two, verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. We looked at um, the gospel showing us that we are the, the children of Abraham, or we are joined into God's family. We receive the blessings and the inheritance. Chapter 3, verse 9 and verse 18 and 24 and 25. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. 
and 18. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Now today, we want to look at chapter 4. And here we see Paul is pointing out the contrast between bondage and freedom. The title of my sermon is The Gospel is Liberty in Christ. We're also going to, to look briefly at, at the gospel being um, a love for one another, loving each other, um, or faith working through love is the term he uses there in, in verse 6 of chapter 5. So we're going to look at chapter 4. I kind of divided this into three different sections. So I'm going to read a section, make some comments on it, and then move on to the next. And then chapter 5, verses 1 through 15, we'll be looking at today as well. And then in the future, the rest of chapter 5. I want to begin in chapter 4. Like I said, the contrast of, of bondage and freedom is what he's really pointing out to them here. And I'm going to start with the last verse of chapter 3 because that really kind of um, ties in there with, with where chapter 4 is going. And I'll read 329 through 4 verse 7. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That's what we were looking at at, at my last sermon out of here. We are part of uh, we're Abraham's seed. We're part of that family. We're part of that um, promise that God gave to Abraham and his descendants. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. We are sons and not slaves. And, and he, he uses that term heirs. Uh, we have inherited something is what that's referring to. What is it that we have inherited? I think you could sum it up by simply the righteousness of God. We've looked earlier at justification by faith. And now as, as part of God's family, as his children, we receive an inheritance. That inheritance is that we are declared to be righteous, not sinners, not under the condemnation of sin. But God has declared us because of our faith in him. He declares us to be righteous. That is the inheritance that we have in him. An heir, you think about what an heir is, he receives an inheritance uh, not because, not as a wage, not because he has worked for it. Unlike a slave who, who works for his master and is generally, in their time, was given a wage, um, an heir receives his father's possessions, his money, um, because of who he is, not because of what he has worked for but because of who he is. And that is how it is for us in Christ Jesus. We receive the inheritance of righteousness because we are his family and we are his, his sons and daughters. We are his family because he has declared us righteous uh, by our faith in him. Then going on in, in verses 8 through 20, here, 
Paul um, goes to pleading with them, and, and it's really a, a um, we see his passion here and his, his fatherly care for them, his concern for them, his love for them, and he's pleading with them, don't go back to, to the law, to depending upon the law for your salvation. This was um, just rehearsing a little bit while it's going on here as he was writing to the Galatians he, he saw the direction they were headed, and he was troubled by this, and he was pleading with them, don't go back to that. That's not where Christ wants you to be. So um, I'll read verses 8 through 20. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus." What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. But it is, a good, but it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. My little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. You see the tone there wherewith he, he is pleading with them um, that they would not listen to these false teachers who were trying to get them to go back to the law. We see he points out to them uh, what they were becoming by going back to that, by listening to those false teachers. They were becoming... First of all, idolaters in verse 8. Back when you didn't know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. And, and now he's saying you're, you're, you're going to go back to that if you depend upon the law. Serving those who are not gods, idolatry. They were becoming um, dependent on weak and beggarly elements. Let's look for a few minutes at, at what he is describing there. We know what weak is. Beggarly is simply uh, the, from the position of a beggar. Um, it um, literally means to crouch down like a beggar in shame and cowardice, as um, needy, as destitute. And, and then he says the weak and beggarly elements, the elements meaning the, the basic principles of. In Colossians chapter 2, it uses that same word calls it um, the basic principles of the world. So he says you're going back to something that's weak, something that's needy, something that's unable to, to offer you what you need. You're going back to that. Those basic um, religious, the, the, the basis of the religious system that you're trying to go back to is weak and beggarly. They're becoming victims of these false teachers' selfish ambitions. In verse 17, he says, they, referring to the false teachers, the, the people who had came in after Paul left, 
and try to steer them in a different direction. They zealously court you, but for no good. They want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. They had selfish ambitions in what they were doing. They wanted the people to follow them rather than Paul, while Paul was trying to point them to Christ. So you're becoming the victims of these false teachers' selfish ambitions. And number four, verse 19, you're turning away from Christ being formed in you. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ and choose to follow him and obey him, Christ becomes formed in us. We should become more and more like him, develop more and more um, of a character that reflects uh, who God is. He's saying you are turning away from that, away from formation of Christ-likeness. What were they turning away from? They had, Paul tells them, you, you received this message that I brought to you. You received it despite my physical infirmity. And we don't really know for sure uh, what that was. There's some speculation and it gives us maybe a few hints here that it may have had something to do with his eyesight or with his eyes. But there was something um, about him that um, was not really pleasing to People, but they accepted him anyhow, despite his physical infirmity. When he preached the gospel to them, they accepted him uh, as an angel from heaven or as Jesus Christ himself. They were glad to hear what he had brought them. And, and he's pleading with them now, why are you turning away from that? What was wrong with that message? Why are you turning away from that? They're becoming zealous for someone else. Their loyalty was being transferred to another He then moves on in the last part of this chapter, the, the last 10 verses, 21 through 31, and he makes a comparison from the Old Testament. I'll read those verses. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? And, and basically there he's saying, look, open your Bibles and, and let's study what it says. Let's look at what it says. They, of course, had the Old Testament law in written form, not the New Testament. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So he's making this, this um, comparison from the Old Testament. He's taking them back to, okay, if you want, you know, these false teachers are bringing the law to you and saying this is what you need to follow. Let's go back to that law and see what it actually says. Let's go back to Abraham and what God told him and look at his life. We know that... Um, Abraham, so God gave him a promise and said, you're going to have a son. You're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the heavens. 
And Abraham was, was up there in years, and his wife was as well, past childbearing years. And Abraham and Sarah wondered, how is this going to happen, that we're going to have all these descendants? So Abraham, in a sense, took matters into his own hand. He attempted to help God out a little bit. Sarah said, here, you take my, my servant girl, and you have a child with her. And so that's what Abraham did, and that's where... Um, that was Hagar, and that's where Ishmael, Abraham's son Ishmael, came into the, the picture there. That was Abraham's attempt to help out God, to, to bring about this promise that God said he would have. Ishmael was born a slave. His mother was their slave. Ishmael was, in a sense, born out of Abraham's unbelief. Ishmael had no inheritance, and Ishmael became a persecutor. Now compare that to Abraham's son Isaac, who was the son of promise, who was born later, miraculously born from Sarah when she was um, older in years, beyond her childbearing years. Isaac was born free. He was the son of God's promise. He was the miracle son. He was by faith. Abraham believed God. He inherited all that Abraham had. And he became the persecuted. So we have those comparisons there that Paul makes from the Old Testament um, to show them the bondage versus freedom and what the difference is. You can go and live under the law, live under bondage. You can accept the salvation that God gives you, his redemption, and live free. I think a key word in this chapter is found in verse 5, where it says that God sent his son um, to be born of a woman. He came to this, this world as a human being to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. That word redeem is the key to the message that Paul is bringing them here. Uh, freedom in Christ being an heir, not a, not a slave, not a servant, not in bondage, but as a son of God is because God has come to redeem us. That is the theme of the scriptures that God reveals himself to us so that we can be redeemed, so that he can bring us back from under the bondage of Satan to freedom in him. His intent here is to communicate this. You were reborn into a family that has given you an inheritance. Now, don't go back to trying to work your way into righteousness. Righteousness. It has been given to you. <clears throat> We'll move on then to chapter 5, and I'd like to read the first 15 verses here. So it's kind of a break here as he, he lays out this, um, this, this comparison of bondage and freedom, and then he starts out in chapter 5 by saying, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made you free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You who have become, you have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. You ran well, who hindered you from obeying the truth. This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. 
A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, be aware, lest you be consumed by one another. The theme of this portion of scripture is the pure gospel is liberty in Christ. I have a number of points I want to make in this passage and then I want to finish by asking some questions of self-examination. Um, he begins by saying stand fast or persevere. It's, it's the idea of, of holding, um, staying in an upright position and persevering and not being um, defeated or pushed back. Stand fast, therefore, in that liberty, in that freedom that God has given you. And don't become entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Notice that it says, by which Christ has made you free. We did not and cannot free ourselves. The bondage that we are in under sin is, uh, I think, maybe we underestimate the, the grip of that bondage at times and think that, well, by some discipline, some good habits and, and living right uh, we can free ourselves from that bondage but no it is that freedom that we have from the bondage is is from god from christ has made us free in verse 2 he says circumcision is of no spiritual profit to you he doesn't condemn those who are circumcised it's not wrong it's just it was something in the law that pointed forward to christ but it is of no spiritual profit to you in fact, he says, if you're going to keep one part of the law, um, you need to keep the whole law. In other words, if, if, if you're going to say circumcision is necessary for you to be righteous, then what about the rest of the law? You really need to keep all of it. You become a debtor to the whole law. I think a good example is if somebody walks into, say, you walk into Lowe's and, and you take something there and put it in your pocket and you put some more things in your cart and, and you go out and pay for them. You keep that one item in your pocket, something in there that you've really wanted and you decide to just steal it. You walk out that door and the security uh, happened to see you do that and, and they arrest you. You are guilty of being a thief. Despite the fact that you paid for everything in your cart, despite the fact that all those other things in the store you left there, you are guilty of breaking the law. So it's a little bit the same way if we try to keep the law to gain our righteousness, we, have, we become a debtor to the whole law and it is impossible for us to be sinless. So even though it's, we've done all these good things, we feel in one area we are condemned, we are sinners, we are guilty. He uses some, some pretty strong language here when he says in verse 4, you have become estranged from Christ. Instead of being a part of his family, his son, you're, you're now 
there's a separation. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace, estranged from Christ and fallen from grace. To me, that sounds pretty serious. That sounds like a desperate situation. If God would not have given us grace, there would only be judgment. We deserve, as sinners, we deserve the condemnation that we were given, but the grace of God is what saves us from that. No wonder Paul was so passionate for them, so concerned about what they were doing. They were falling from grace, coming estranged from Christ. Earlier on in the book of Galatians, Paul put a lot of emphasis on faith and being saved by faith. And we've been studying the book of James in Sunday school here, and you may have noticed the emphasis there on works. In fact, he says in James that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. And then here Paul says it's not by works, it's by faith. So do the two contradict each other? It can seem that way maybe at first glance, but I think as we look into to this, the two writers have, have a bit of a different emphasis, writing to a different group of people, dealing with a different problem. But notice here in chapter 5, verse 6, that Paul does bring in works and its role, um, its place in the Christian's life. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Faith produces works, and James would agree with that. He says it's not keeping the law, but it's faith working through love. We see that term works brought in here. They have a place. Works are not done in duty but, or for the reward, but they're done in love. A love for Christ is is shown by serving him. Serving Christ is shown by serving others. That's the message he has for them here. In verses 13 and 14, you've been called to liberty, but don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh or don't use it for selfish ambitions. Yes, we have that, that freedom, if you will, to make that choice and to do that and use that that grace of God that has been given to us and say, okay, I can do what I want to now. But that's perverting the grace of God. That's not what his grace was given to us for. Don't use that liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. That's how we serve Christ. That's how we express our love for Christ, by serving one another. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you have accomplished what the law was intended to accomplish. In verse 14, the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That love is a powerful motivator. That love for Christ is expressed in a love for each other by serving each other and building each other up. Salvation by works, or what we're going to call here it legalism, is a serious offense, as we've already seen by the terms, the word, wording that Paul uses and by his, 
his strong desire to uh, his pleading with them about the direction they were going. Salvation by works or legalism is a serious offense. We see that in, in verses 7 through 15 here. <clears throat> it is disobedience. It is a lie. It does not come from God in verse 7. He also warns them that a little bit of legalism will pervert or destroy the whole. Just as a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So be careful, he tells them. Don't let that little bit come in. It will destroy the whole. He also says that those who teach this will be judged. He has some rather strong words to those who are bringing in this teaching that they need to follow the law to be righteous. Those who teach legalism are offended by the cross. You see, it was the religious system that believed that they had to follow the letter of the law in order to be righteous. It was that system, those religious people that put Christ on the cross, the Pharisees, they condemned him. They couldn't stand the teaching of Jesus and they put him on the cross. So those who teach legalism are offended by the message of the cross. The fact that that, that thief who hung on the cross beside Jesus could be saved is an offense to them. He didn't do any works. He didn't do any righteous works. But Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. It was by faith, and that is an offense to the legalist. He also points out how that the legalists destroy each other. And here's how I think this, how I see that this happens. The legalist points out all the ways that others are not keeping the law. This makes him look like a law keeper. He cannot serve others in love. He only serves others to gain more for himself. He is offended by the cross of Christ because that is how Christ offered salvation to the worst of sinners. And how can the worst of sinners be righteous? He wants those around him to be in bondage so that he is not alone in his own bondage. He wants to control what is taught as truth so that his lies will not be exposed. The legalists bite and devour each other. And the Christian is to build up, to encourage, to serve, to honor and respect. What Christ did by sending his own son is where we find the ability to love. And through that love, to serve others. Now some questions for, our self for self-examination as we look at what Paul says here about legalism, about following the law, the liberty that we have in Christ, and as he warns them, the dangers of drifting away from the gospel message, the pure gospel. First question, are we confused as to which master we are serving? Following the Civil War, there was a former slave woman in the South who was confused about her status and asked, now is I free or been I locked? When I go to my old master, he says I ain't free. And when I go to my own people, they say I is. And I don't know whether I'm free or not. Some people told me that Abraham Lincoln signed a proclamation. But master says he didn't. He didn't have no right to. Are we confused like that slave woman? I'm not quite sure which master we are serving. 
The Galatians seemed to be, concern, be confused in that area, and Paul was concerned about them. Question number two, can I identify any of the characteristics of the legalist in my life, the, the, the legalist that I just described, who tears others down, who serves to gain more for himself, who is offended at the cross of Christ, that it offers salvation to the worst of sinners. He wants those around him to, to be in bondage so he doesn't feel alone in his own bondage. Can you identify with any of those characteristics in your life? Number three, can you determine what is, spirit, what is of spiritual profit and what is not? In verse 3 and verse 6 of chapter 5. Every man who becomes circumcised is a debtor to keep the whole law. And in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Can we determine what is of spiritual profit and what is not? Sometimes there's things that we um, have been taught to do and we, we place, uh, give too much priority to. We think, well, I really need to do that to be righteous. Are we doing what they did here? Going back to, oh, you have to be circumcised or you can't be um, righteous before God. Can we identify what is of true spiritual profit and what is not? It's not that Paul was saying circumcision has no place. It's, it's not wrong. But that's not of spiritual profit to you. What is, is faith working through love. And the last one, am I eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness by faith? In verse 5 of chapter 5, we through the Spirit, Paul says, we are eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness by faith. Is there an eagerness, an anticipation? Um, yes, we are, we are righteous now. What, what's he mean when he says the hope of righteousness? God has declared us to be righteous because if we put our faith in him, he declares us to be righteous as his part of his family, as his sons, as his heirs. But we have an inheritance yet coming. We know that we're not sinless. We have sinned. We struggle with that. But there's a time, there's a righteousness that, that is given to us now, and there is a fulfillment of, of all that when, when we will be completely free from sin and its temptations. In eternity, there's a hope that we are going to arrive at that place of perfect righteousness and no more sin. Are we eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness by faith? See, if you're trying to earn your salvation, if you're trying to work for your salvation, you're not going to be eagerly anticipating that day. You're just hoping you make it. But in Christ, knowing that he has saved you and knowing that day, that day is coming when we will be taken out of this world, we can eagerly anticipate for the hope of righteousness by faith. Or are you under the burden of earning your own way? So those are some challenging questions for you to think about as you think about Paul's message here, why he was trying to teach the Galatians. I'd like to take one more sermon out of this book and in the, the last part of chapter five here and into chapter six. The pure gospel is to walk in the spirit and to carry the cross of Christ. Two verses from Romans chapter eight. 
For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Lord, we thank you for your written word. We thank you for this message from the book of Galatians. Yes, Paul was teaching this to a church, a body of believers many, many years ago, but there's so much here that applies to us as well, that um, we're not that different than these people were many years ago. Help us to have hearts that are open to um, your examination and allow you to show us uh, in our lives where we may be going, drifting away from the pure gospel, drifting a way to a different gospel that really isn't the gospel or good news at all. May you draw us back to you. May you teach us your ways. Give us strength and courage and hope that we can serve one another in love and express our love for you and what you have done by showing that to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ken, do you have a clock?